Hello and welcome to the episode within the octave of Christmas of No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and I just found out, literally just moments ago, that uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI is ill, and Pope Francis has asked for our prayers. He may, in fact, be in his final illness. So I want to take a moment here at the beginning of the program to pray for Pope Benedict XVI, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Angels, Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, Our Lady, Help of Christians, pray for us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And our our very best, uh, our our prayers and wishes for Pope Benedict and uh, his, uh, if this especially is his passing, on to his reward. And um, now on to today's program. You have probably heard a very famous quote from uh, St. Padre Pio that it would be easier for the world to exist without the sun than without the Holy Mass. Now, there is one problem with this. Padre Pio never said that. Uh, and for reasons that should be apparent, uh, our Lord founded the Eucharist, uh, the, the very first Mass was at the Last Supper on Holy Thursday in the first century of the Christian era, which means, of course, that the world had existed for many millennia without the Holy Mass. So what is it that Padre Pio said? What he really said was, it would be easier for the world to exist without the Son than for the Church to exist without the Mass. And that is that comparison... Well, first off, you know, in other words, the, without the Son, the world would die, and likewise, the Church without the Mass. And I think that that's, you know, apparent, but I, perhaps this comparison has a deeper meaning. What if there were, say, uh, a prolonged eclipse? With the Son in eclipse, some things would wither and die, but some things would survive, because the darkness wouldn't be total, there would still be a little sunlight. And now, how does that relate to the Holy Mass? Well, the other day I saw a meme on Facebook, which was a picture of the elevation at the, at the Mass, a traditional Latin Mass, and the word said, the Latin Mass isn't back, it was never gone. And that's true. The traditional Latin Mass continued to be offered here and there in many parts of the world, um, even after Paul VI imposed the new order of the Mass. And, of course, we know that after the imposition of the new Mass, that the Church has been in sharp decline by every measurable standard ever since. One might go so far as to say that the Church is in eclipse. But I believe that the traditional Latin Mass has generated enough light to keep the Church on life support, because without it, she would die as surely as the world would die without the sun. Now, that's just my opinion. But it might be well to note that Padre Pio never said the new Mass. Now, as the Church of, you know, the, the, the post-conciliar Church, the Church of Vatican II, um, however, and, I, and that's not, those aren't my terms, those are the, you know, the terms of the proponents of Vatican II use, as that continues its downward spiral, 
Catholics attached to the traditional Latin Mass represent the only segment of the church that's actually growing instead of actively shrinking. The traditional Latin Mass at my parish is ridiculously crowded. And I should mention that it's crowded with people of all ages and ethnicities, and especially young, young families. And they represent the future. And a case in point is an article uh, that I saw on the New York Post site from December 24th by a Selena Zito. It was called, A New Generation of Catholics Discovers Latin Mass 40 Years After Vatican II. Now, it's kind of like a New York Times article from um, last November that was called, The Old Latin Mass Finds New American Audience Despite Pope's Disapproval. And this one also puts some kind of generally positive spin on the traditional movement, at least to acknowledge that it is in fact growing. But it's filled with the, the kind of usual misinterpretations that we've come to expect. Now, the good thing about the New York Times article from last month is that it prompted a response from Jesuit magazine, uh, the Jesuit magazine America. Uh, and it was a, um, an article by a Ms. Carrie Weber entitled, Stop Saying the Latin Mass is More Reverent. And, you know, this is in reply to the fact that virtually everyone interviewed in that Times uh, article volunteered without prompting that the old Mass is more reverent than the new Mass. Now, Ms. Carey interprets that as an attack on the priests who celebrate the Novus Ordo and on the faithful who assist at the Novus Ordo. And that is absurd because uh, no traditional Catholic is saying that, that they, or should I say we, are, are more reverent than our Novus Ordo attending brethren. Rather, what they're saying is that the extraordinary form of the Mass, of the Roman Rite, is inherently more reverent than the ordinary form. Right? Uh, uh, liturgical abuses notwithstanding. So it would be hard to argue otherwise if you make a, a fair comparison. And that's why Carrie Weber purposely sets up this straw man that saying the traditional Latin Mass is more reverent is an ad hominem attack on Novus Ordo priests and faithful, rather than a general observation regarding the demonstrable difference in character between the new Mass and the traditional Mass, as I said, uh, with liturgical abuse off the table. And we've made that comparison, and will again in the coming year, no doubt. But <clears throat> as I said, well, it's nice to see some articles about the growing traditional movement in secular outlets like the Times and the New York Post. Uh, the familiar negative stereotypes still remain. And, and it's a fact that the majority of people don't read um, newspaper articles unless they're already interested in the content. And so the average reader reads the headline, and then looks at the picture and reads the caption. And if that captures their interest, they, they will read more. Uh, and if not, then they'll figure that they've, you know, they'll base their opinion on, on just that. Now, in this case, uh, in the New York Post, the headline is, A New Generation of Catholics Discovers Latin Mass 60 Years After Vatican II. And in the online version that I saw under the headline, there's a photo of a traditional mass at uh, Most Precious Blood of Jesus Parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the picture was taken within the nave of the church, which was more than half empty. And it shows a single priest and a single server at the altar. And then the caption reads, The practice of Latin Mass, which was abolished some six decades ago by the Second Vatican Council, features a priest with his back turned away from the congregation. Uh, full stop. Now, where to begin? You know, if you were to actually read the article, you would discover that 
over 850 Catholics regularly attend uh, the Sunday Mass at Most Precious Blood of Jesus, which means that, like my parish, it is beyond standing room only. In other words, more people come to that Latin Mass than the Church can accommodate. But the picture they used, um, almost certainly from a daily Mass, uh, that is obviously less well attended uh, and, and doesn't feature the, the smells and bells of a Sunday Mass that you would see in the picture, just the one lone priest and server. Uh, and, you know, the caption says that the Mass was abolished 60 years ago, which it wasn't, and further, that it was abolished by Vatican II, which it wasn't. As I, as I, I can't repeat this often enough, you can read Sacrosanctum, Sacrosanctum Concilium until your eyes bleed and you will not find a mandate for a new order of the Mass. And, you know, just by the way, the priest facing the altar is not uh, turning his back to the people. So those typical errors and misrepresentations continue in the body of the article, which states that the Eucharist is the symbolic body and blood of Christ, you know, uh, reiterates that the Mass was abolished by Vatican II, that um, the most crucial change, the most important change is that the priest finally got to face the congregation. You know, like, yeah, that's what everybody was longing for back in those days. But, it says, the traditional Mass never completely vanished. Today, of the 17,000 Catholic parishes in the United States, 592 of them perform the extraordinary form in Latin, including at least six in New York City, and four including Most Precious Blood in Western Pennsylvania. Now, once again, there is a certain slant in this. I mean, they, they could have chosen to say, all of the 194 dioceses in the United States have at least one traditional Latin Mass, which is true. Uh, in fact, you know, if you spread it out, the average would be three per diocese. Uh, obviously, some have more and some less. But the fact is that less than a third of U.S. Catholic parishes have Mass in any language other than English. And among the non-English Masses, Latin Mass represents some 10% actually a little more than 10% of those masses. So the point is that the Post chose to use the comparison that makes the Latin Mass seem the least significant. But on a a more positive note, they do document the quote-unquote robust growth of the traditional Latin Mass, not only in Pittsburgh, but nationwide. A recent survey, it says, revealed a marked increase in traditional Latin Mass attendance since the beginning of the pandemic. This boom is playing out against a backdrop of recent restrictions on the Latin Mass from Pope Francis. Last year, the Argentine-born pontiff described Latin Mass as divisive and imposed new limits on the service, which had been partially, partially reintroduced over the past three decades by both of his successors, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. In June, Francis went even further, demanding the faithful stop exploiting the Latin Mass for ideological reasons, which he feared might fracture the very unity of the Catholic Church. And then it goes on to say that he was harshly criticized by many young traditionalists for his stance, some of whom took to Twitter in outrage. Well, the question is, was it only young traditionalists who criticized Francis's position, or is there more to the story? Well, we will find out about that and lots more Got a lot to talk about today on No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you with us here during the octave of Christmas, and we will uh, come back to share more right after these messages. So stay with us.
Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about an article from the New York Post about young Catholics rediscovering the traditional Latin Mass 60 years after Vatican II, and that this boom in uh, attendance at the traditional Latin Mass is playing out against the backdrop of the restrictions, the new restrictions that Pope Francis has put on the Latin Mass. And um, we quoted his comments from June of uh, this year, demanding that, quote, the faithful stop exploiting Latin Mass for ideological reasons, because he fears it will fracture the unity of the Church. And uh, the article says that Francis was harshly criticized by many young traditionalists in his stance, some of whom took to Twitter in outrage. Now, okay, uh, that's certainly true, but uh, the critics of Francis' policy also include any number of uh, Catholic bishops and other clergy, as well as young traditionalists on Twitter. And they beg the question of whether the faithful really are exploiting the, the Latin Mass for ideological reasons. But the article goes on to quote two young couples with small children who assist at the Latin Mass at Most Precious Blood of Jesus, including 26-year-old Brendan Miller Bolt, his wife Elizabeth, and their two young children. A Minnesota native studying for his Ph.D. in computer science at a nearby university, Brendan said he was drawn to Latin Mass for its solemnity, reverence, and mystery. He goes on to say, while there is nothing egregiously wrong with our local parish, so, right, it's not, he doesn't hate the, the Novus Ordo Mass. He says, <clears throat> it still wasn't as conducive to worship as what we found when we visited Most Precious Blood. The integration with the community definitely feels more vibrant. See, young and vibrant are not uh, words you typically find in mainstream media associated with the traditional Latin Mass. Article notes that many of the churches in the East Coast and the Midwest were you know, uh, they, they're majestic and, and elaborate and, and beautiful old churches, a lot of them built during the uh, time of the European immigration in the early 20th century and, uh, and the Gothic revival of the, the late 19th and early 20th century. And they are magnificent. I wish I could attend the traditional mass in a church that was built for it. Um, but the point is, he says that, um, um, that these traditional masses uh, like that at Most Precious Blood are filled every Sunday with hundreds of children. And he says that the priest there says that people are initially drawn to the liturgy for its sheer beauty. <clears throat> High mass, Gregorian chant, incense, etc. And that's no nonsense. But the question remains, why do the current occupants of the Vatican hate the traditional Latin mass so much? Why indulge in, in so much hateful rhetoric and, and draconian policy? Why single out young traditional Catholics for accusations of rigidity or even mental illness just because they want to worship the way Catholics have always worshipped? And why are the most compromised and uh, immoral among the clergy celebrated when some of the most pious and devout are censured? And I'll give you a hint, it's not about, and it was never about, the Holy Mass. I asked why it is that the Pope and, and some of the more progressive bishops and theologians have such an intense animus against the traditional Latin Mass, and I think that we can find some insight in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, which is the healing of the Gerizim demoniac. And here is a man possessed by demons living amongst the tombstones. Uh, he would howl and gash himself with, with sharp stones and generally terrorize the neighborhood. And he couldn't be restrained, even with chains and, and shackles, which he would snap and break to pieces. And no one, it says, had the strength to subdue him. 
But you get to verses 6 and following, and it says, When the man caught sight of Jesus from a distance, he ran up and prostrated himself before him. As he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you in God's name, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Unclean spirit, come out of the man. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for there are many of us. And he begged him earnestly not to send them back into the abyss. Now on the mountainside a great herd of pigs was feeding, and they pleaded with him, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And he allowed this. And with that the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, charged down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned in the waters. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported the incident in the town and throughout the countryside, and as a result people came out to see what had happened. And when they came near Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by legion sitting there, fully clothed and in his right mind, and they were grateful. (laughs) No, it doesn't say that. It says they were frightened and they began to implore Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons pleaded to be allowed to go with him. However, Jesus would not permit him to do so and instead told him, Go home to your own people and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The men then departed and began to make known throughout the Decapolis, the man rather, then departed and began to make known throughout the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Now why did uh, they beg Jesus to leave when he had finally delivered them for this man possessed by a legion of demons. A man who had, you know, terrorized the the region is now dressed and calm and in his right mind. And and their reaction is to tell the person who, who brought it about to get out of Dodge. You know, and some commentators would suggest that they were upset by the loss of the pigs, and I suppose there is something to that. But I think there's something more. You know, the Gerizim uh, region was composed of Gentile immigrants, more recent Gentile immigrants, and the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel who had assimilated with the uh, pagan population, the pagan culture in, in the region. So their fear of Jesus, I think, was really a combination of guilt and pride. For one thing, descendants of the uh, people of Israel really shouldn't have been eating pork, should they? Uh, and, and so the, just the very holiness of this pious Jew would cause, um, uh, you know, this, this, this consternation. Um, this, this man who, who could dismiss a legion of demons with a word was uh, indictment of their sinfulness. And so instead of thanking him, they begged him to go away. Now, the formerly possessed man wanted to go with him, and you, as you might imagine, But Jesus forbade it. And why? He says, because the man himself was to remain as a witness amongst those people, as a continuing reminder of the challenging holiness of Jesus. And that's how this relates to the progressive Catholics who hate the Latin Mass. Its very existence is an indictment against the watering down of the holy sacrifice and the general moral laxity of the quote-unquote new paradigm that, uh, that we got after Vatican II. 
We finally got rid of all those old Bible passages and prayers that were a constant reminder of our sinfulness and the reality of hell and judgment and and God's wrath. And now you want to throw all that back in our face? I don't think so. It's like the man who was uh, um, delivered from the legion of demons, those of us who embrace the traditional faith. And that includes those who do not exclusively attend the traditional Latin Mass, but who hold to the Catholic faith, you know, whole and entire. We are, by our very existence, an indictment of the dismal state of the Church and the policies that brought it about. And so they hate us. But as our good Lord says, no servant is greater than his master. If they hate you, remember they hated me first. And that's no nonsense. You know, Jesus also said, beware of false prophets, of those who come to you in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly are ravening wolves. By their fruits you shall know them. You know, traditionally the church identifies false prophets primarily as the world, the flesh, the devil, and the wolves in sheep's clothing that we find not only in religion, uh, uh, but also in education and politics, finance, science, and so on. And we we can start with science. Uh, Even today, those who question the nature of the COVID-19 pandemic or or global warming or or the so-called gay gene or or any of the current scientific sacred cows are are quickly dismissed for the crime of not believing in science. Okay, so let's get this out there. I believe in science, okay, (laughs) to the degree that I accept that there are certain demonstrable physical laws in the universe. If you get enough heat, fuel, and oxygen together, you will produce fire every time. Okay? The, the problem is that too many people believe in science like a religious faith. And at that point, science becomes idolatry. And scientists become false prophets. And we can take climate change as an example. When I was a schoolboy in 1970, science prophesied that we'd be in an ice age by the year 2000. In 1976, when I was in high school, science predicted that the catastrophic events of this coming ice age would cause World War III by the year 2000. Uh, But as the world wasn't getting any cooler, in 1989, global cooling was swapped out for global warming. And the new prophecy became that by the year 2000, melting ice caps would cause entire nations to be wiped off the map because of rising sea levels. Uh, a year later, in 1990, the prophets of science warned that we had only until the year 2000 to save the rainforests. Now, of course, the year 2000 finally came, and all of these predictions were proven, and I want to use that underline that word, proven wrong. However, the prophets of science prophesied that snow would soon be a thing of the past. Uh, in 2007, science prophesied that global warming would cause fewer hurricanes, In 2012, they uh, prophesied that global warming would cause more hurricanes. In 2008, they said the Arctic would be ice-free by 2013. And then by 2014, those who pointed out that for nearly 50 years, all, and I do mean all, of the historical climate change prophecies had been spectacularly wrong, were forcibly drowned out with the new mantra of the followers of the false prophets, the science is settled which is as unscientific a notion as one can have regarding unproven hypotheses. Remember Galileo? 
Most people think Galileo ran afoul of the Inquisition for teaching heliocentrism, that the earth uh, uh, revolves around the sun and not vice versa. And that is in fact not true. Copernicus posited uh, that theory before Galileo was born. Galileo himself learned the theory uh, while at a Catholic university. What got Galileo into trouble was not teaching the theory of heliocentrism, but misrepresenting it as an established fact, which it was not at the time. You see, in, in a more rational age, the powers that be realized that presenting an unproven scientific hypothesis as a fact uh, uh, would lead to all sorts of trouble. Just for example, some unscrupulous politicians might start uh, legislating on the basis of an unproven theory to justify favoring certain policies of their own party or to please their big donors. Or universities might start uh, treating such hypotheses much more seriously than they deserve. And, And these false prophecies... Uh, represent millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in fruitless research that might have been spent more productively elsewhere. And that's just one reason. We'll be back with more and how all of this relates to our faith when we come back on No Nonsense Catholic right here on Verge's Most Powerful Radio. Stick with us. Welcome back. I was talking with our engineer, Richie, and he, he reminded me of follow the science. You know, and again, that's, uh, that's a danger, following the science. If, if uh, you know, if these scientific hypotheses um, are, are treated as facts uh, before they're determined to be facts, then, uh, you know, you get real problems, you know. You get universities treating hypotheses more seriously than they deserve and even falsifying their findings, in order to acquire, you know, lucrative government grants and that sort of thing, or, you know, to advance their own agenda. Now, hypothetically, let's say that some unscrupulous politician, in order to advance a certain globalist agenda, went so far as to conspire to shut down the entire economy of the Western world over the threat of a killer virus that was really no more dangerous than a a bad seasonal flu. And let's assume that as a consequence, this absurdly transparent totalitarian power grab would destroy the livelihoods of millions upon millions of productive people, cripple entire industries, produce dangerous shortages, cause untold deaths worldwide by suicide, starvation, and curable diseases that went undiagnosed and untreated because people couldn't go to the doctor for fear of getting sick. Now, let's imagine at the same time that their willing accomplices in in politics, education, media, canceled, censored, or shouted down all the valid questions and criticisms by chanting in union, follow the science, and the science is settled. I suspect that if someone uh, had prophesied such a scenario way back in, say, I don't know, 2018, that everybody would have thought them insane. And yet, as we know, this isn't a hypothetical. That's what actually happened. Now, bad as uh, the false prophets are, the wolves in sheep's clothing in the church are far worse because their false prophecies endanger souls, directly endanger souls. Fortunately, our Lord told us how to recognize them. By their fruits, you shall know them. Now, since Vatican II, the, the, the wolves have been active in an unprecedented way. We mentioned 
before the crisis of faith and morals in the Catholic Church, from mass attendance to vocations, catechesis, by virtually every measurable standard, the Church has been in precipitous decline for decades. And at the same time, it's been rocked by the worst kind of scandals at at every level, including the highest. Now, who in the middle 1950s, you know, in the United States, could have imagined that in 60 years, our bishops would be locked in an acrimonious debate over whether or not it's their duty to admonish the sinner. Uh, You know, they can't agree on whether or not to deny communion to notorious public heretics who support the wholesale murder of children. Well, in their defense, 60 years ago, no one would have imagined uh, uh, that a majority of Catholics wouldn't even know the most basic uh, fundamental teachings of the Church, including that of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But then again, that's also the bishop's fault. Because they are the ones, after all, who have the responsibility, who are the primary teachers in their respective dioceses. They are meant to teach, govern, and sanctify. And by their fruits, you shall know them. Pope Benedict, and we uh, in the opening segment prayed for his continued health because he's apparently uh, dangerously ill. When he was Cardinal Ratzinger, he made the observation that the crisis in the church is unique in our history. But from whence does that situation proceed? Well, he said, I am convinced that the ecclesial crisis in which we find ourselves today depends in great part upon the collapse of the liturgy, which at times is being conceived, actually being conceived, of esti deus non deritur. That means as if God were not a given. He says, as though in the liturgy it did not matter anymore whether God exists and whether he speaks to us and listens to us. But if in the liturgy the communion of faith no longer appears, nor the universal unity of the church and of her history, nor the mystery of the living Christ, where is that? Where is it that the church still appears in her spiritual substance? I can tell you where. And I suspect that's why he liberated the traditional mass when he became pope. Not just so that that mass would be offered more frequently, thanks be to God, but in hopes that it would rub off on the celebration of the Novus Ordo Mise, what he called the mutual enrichment of the two rites. And I've seen it with my own eyes. Parishes that have the traditional Latin Mass having a much uh, more reverent and sober celebration of the ordinary form. But here at the same time as, as the Catholic faith has gone into free fall, a majority of the hierarchy has been paradoxically uh, trying to fix things by continuing to dismantle the church's traditional institutions. Case in point was when Paul VI uh, suppressed minor priestly orders back in 1972 and concurrently invented the two brand new installed lay ministries of lector and acolyte, uh, which were you know part of the minor orders of the priesthood that he abolished. Now, I suspect that very few Catholics remember that these new lay ministries in which ministers were installed as opposed to ordained, that they were exclusive to men, or that they were invented by Pope Paul precisely to fill the void that he created by his own suppression of the minor orders of lector and acolyte. Well, naturally, as with virtually all post-conciliar changes, this instruction was universally ignored. 
Lay Catholic men, by and large, didn't have that much interest in usurping the priestly roles of reading the scriptures or leading prayers or performing the service of an altar boy. And since it was still unthinkable at that time to officially install a woman in a church ministry, they just dropped the so-called installation altogether and simply welcomed lay women uh, into the roles of lector, an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, and, and last but not least, acolyte or altar girl. And even though I suspect that the newly revised installed ministry of acolyte is, is uh, pointed more towards uh, um, the role of sacristan or something like it, um, the fact is that role is already largely filled by women anyhow. In fact, as you know perfectly well in the Novus Ordo Church, while there are some men involved in these ministries, quote-unquote, they are literally dominated by women and girls. And that's, that's just, it's just a fact. All that's missing is for the women to be officially installed in these various ministries, including the newly formed Ministry of Catechesis. And I suspect that's, uh, you know, making catechist uh, an installed ministry is an attempt at central control over the content of catechesis. You know, apparently when Pope Francis says he hates clericalism and wants a more democratic church, what that means is he wants absolute control over every single aspect of Catholic life. <laughs> now, why does the official installment matter? More on that in a moment. But let's first just look at the definition of the term ministry. It means the work of religious ministers. Ministry is the privileged term for what the clergy do, and that's primarily the administration of the sacraments. Ministry doesn't necessarily exclude lay people, but the term is proper to the work of bishops, priests, and deacons. So-called lay ministers are unheard of before Paul VI, and it's yet another modern novelty. Speaking of novelties, uh, the Vatican II document on the laity, Apostolicum Axiositatem, was itself a novelty in the sense that it was the first time in the history of history that the church, uh, you know, a church council produced a document entirely devoted to the vocation of the laity. And it's significant that that document never once, never once uses the term ministry in regard to lay people. It uses the word apostolate often, which means, you know, uh, uh, the work of an apostle. Pope Francis, some of the more modernist bishops, consistently accuse faithful Catholics of the old kind of clericalism, right? Uh, just do whatever Father says, do whatever the bishop says. That's, that's clericalism. But merely to speak of, of lay ministry, that in itself is a new kind of clericalism because it actively undermines the authentic role of Catholic lay people. Liberal Catholics often claim that the, the, the only role for the preconciliar laity was to pray, pay, and obey. And I suspect there's a certain truth to the claim that, that the preconciliar church had fallen uh, victim to a kind of clericalism, you know, a kind of ecclesiastical paternalism, where our spiritual fathers became like uh, indulgent parents that, uh, you know, encourage kids not to grow up because we'll always be there to take care of you. And consequently, preconciliar lay Catholics maybe they didn't uh, actively pursue holiness or, or work to develop a, a mature and well-informed faith in, in the way that they might have. Which, unfortunately, you know, that just makes you easy prey for what happened after the council. Because clericalism didn't go away, it just was replaced by a new form. While, frankly, the old form is still around. You know, I read an article 
oh, a year or more ago, I think it was June of 2021, by uh, Chris Ferrara. And he quoted Pope uh, Paul VI to the effect that, quote, the important words of the Second Vatican Council are newness and updating. The word newness has been given to us as an order, as a program. So that's, that's newness for the sake of newness. Uh, and, you know, newness just because it's new. And Ferrara says that's a sentiment that could not be more alien to the role of the papacy as the conservator of what has been handed down. Now, maybe it would have been different if more lay people, and clergy too, for that matter, had bothered to read the Vatican II documents. But that old style of clericalism, I was still in full swing directly after the council. So much so that all the post-conciliar changes, all the stuff that happened after Vatican II, like the new mass and communion in the hand and, and so on and so forth, those things were largely accepted uncritically by those Catholics, you know, those Catholics who didn't simply abandon the faith, which is actually a majority of Catholics. But the authentic call of Vatican II for, for lay Catholics to be the salt and light of our culture was simply ignored. With the result that lay people largely drank the uh, post-conciliar Kool-Aid and, uh, that, they're living, or that living their faith meant taking on liturgical roles at the Mass. They became lectors and liturgists and, and extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and were indoctrinated into advocating for more and more and more lay involvement in the liturgy, which is not our proper role. I remember... Um, a couple of years ago, uh, going to a, a Novus Ordo Mass locally, and what happened when they didn't, when the the, the uh, lay lector didn't show up? I'll tell you that story, and uh, and we'll talk about more when we come back after this break. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host Matthew Warnold. Glad to have you along here during this octave of Christmas, and I uh, hope that you stick through the break. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Yeah, talking about this story, I'd been uh, assisting at the traditional Matin Mass for about 10 years, and uh, um, on, uh, I don't remember the exact circumstance, but I found myself needing to um, fulfill my obligation and unable to get to the traditional Latin Mass, and so I went to the parish church that I had attended for many years, and um, they, the person that was supposed to lecture had failed to show up, and I was recognized and uh, asked if I wouldn't uh, step in as lector, because you have to have, you know, because, you know, the Mass is about to start. We need somebody to read the readings. And, and I just, you know, reminded the priest, um, you don't need a lay lector. <laughs> you know, uh, you, in fact, you don't need the congregation even. You can do the Mass uh, without all of that, you know. And it was just weird that because the clerics too, you know, priests, they got into this mindset of that all these options are in fact necessary when they're not. You know, all of, not only that, you know, um, clergy and laity it turned Vatican II's vision for engaging the culture on its head by abandoning the church's perennial teaching that the members of the body of Christ have proper roles. Like Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, just like the members and organs of the body uh, the ordained have their role, and the lady have ours. And it's for them to celebrate the sacraments and for us to develop an apostolate in the world that goes out beyond the four walls of the parish church. We need the clergy to be clergy, 
to celebrate the sacraments with reverence and with dignity, to teach, govern, and sanctify us so that we can go out and sanctify the world. That was the vision of Vatican II. Now, now what are we getting? And, and please don't be scandalized if I ask whether certain highly visible or, or, or high-ranking clergy really have the Catholic faith. Because that's only an echo of our Lord's own question from Luke 18.8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You know, I often take solace in the fact that there is one and only one sector of the church that's growing instead of shrinking. And that's the tradition, you know, traditional Catholicism. The ranks of those who regularly assist at the traditional Latin Mass has doubled since the advent of, of COVID tide. I remember back, I think it was 19, uh, 2017, I was being interviewed by Catholic Answers uh, about my book, um, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic. And he asked me if I thought the traditional movement was going to continue to grow. And I said, I, I expected the traditional uh, Catholic to, you know, um, mass and all that traditional Catholicism to become the norm. And he said, why is that? And I said, because liberal Catholics don't beget more liberal Catholics, they beget non-Catholics. But traditional Catholics beget more traditional Catholics. You know, but, but there is more to it than what Mass you attend. You know, back in December of 2019, uh, Ed Faust wrote an article called The Way We Were Not. And, and I'll quote it. I'm going to kind of quote it at length here, which I don't usually do, although I've done it before, because this is really, really good. He said, there's a notion prevalent among many traditional Catholics that it was the loss of the Tridentine Mass and sound catechesis following the Second Vatican Council that led to the present problems in the Church. It follows, then, that the restoration of pre-Vatican II Catholicism will remedy the situation. But will it? We had all the things that traditionalists now long for before Vatican II and it proved unavailing. We tend to forget that the men who suppressed the Tridentine Mass were bishops and priests, who had been saying this Mass for decades, and in some cases for the greater part of a lifetime. Yet they not only abandoned the Mass of their ordination, in many cases they became its sworn enemy. And the abandonment of clear pre-Vatican II catechesis and the imposition of progressive doctrines of a rather fuzzy nature was the work of men who had studied Thomism, Thomism during their seminary training, along with dogmatic theology. I would also point out that, you know, to a man, the Council Fathers had sworn the oath against modernism. But here's the point. Mr. Faust says, uh, they did not lack knowledge, they lacked love. For we do not cast aside that which we love. We cherish and protect it. External structures, no matter how admirable, remain external structures unless they are loved. The present state of the church and the world may seem very dark, but for those who love our Lord, it presents an opportunity. With the loss of external structures and support, we have to rely more on our own relationship with God, which is now threatened in so many ways, even more so now than in 2019. And the fight must be carried on within more than without, for the enemy of love is selfishness. And that's consistent with what Our Lady of America had to say about being devoted to the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity, recalling our Lord's own words, the kingdom of God is within you, which means that it can never be taken away. The true measure of spiritual progress is how well we love one another. It may be pleasant to imagine a past in which all was well with the church, 
The convents and seminaries were full, the mass was in Latin, doctrine was certain and sound. But we should recall how quickly all of this was swept away, and think honestly and deeply about why it occurred. In the end, all we'll be able to keep is that which we have loved. You know, as St. Paul says famously in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and there now remain faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Because when we die and go to judgment, we won't need faith, we'll have knowledge. And as for hope, uh, we will either be fulfilled in heaven or, or need to be abandoned in hell. Only love lasts forever. Mr. Foss concludes, Popes and presidents and prime ministers and dictators will come and go. We are not answerable for them. When we stand for judgment, Jesus will ask us one thing, did you love others as I loved you? So let's not spend too much time thinking about the way we were, but instead look at the way we are. And I agree, uh, you know, uh, that, that's a really important point, that all the things that we long for, all the things that we want to, to uh, return to and reinstate as, you know, traditional Catholics, and again, whether or not you exclusively attend the traditional Mass, um, all those things were present before all this happened. It wasn't a, a, a complete bulwark and safeguard against this nonsense. You know, we've been promised that if we seek first the kingdom of God, Everything else will be given to us. And if we seek first to bring about an external circumstance, no matter how admirable it appears, we might lose the kingdom of God even if we succeed. You know, you know for years I've been giving talks about the quest for spiritual perfection. You know, when all the great medieval saints and doctors of the church from, um, you know, Bernard of Clairvaux to Thomas Aquinas to Thomas Akempis, they have all insisted on that following our Lord's admonition to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And whether you're building Augustine's city of God or the medieval ideal of the earthly Jerusalem or Tennyson's ideal of Camelot or, or uh, John Paul II's civilization of love, external projects all, they all have their root in the quest for spiritual perfection, or what Vatican II called the universal call to holiness. That doesn't mean doing anything extraordinary, but simply, as St. Paul says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Or again, as our Lord himself said, if you love me, keep the commandments. You see, you no longer need to live in the kingdom of this world, okay, which is coming to an end. This world, the flesh, the devil, all they have is time. And time comes to an end. So, right now, we don't have to live in the kingdom of this world, in the kingdom of, of, of selfishness and darkness of sin. Through sanctifying grace, we can live in the kingdom of God right now. No matter what mass you attend, or who's sitting on the chair of Peter, or who's in the Oval Office, for heaven's sake. No one can take the kingdom of God away from you because the kingdom of God is within you. When Pope Benedict was still Father Ratzinger, back in uh, just like 1976, he said, we will soon have priests reduced to the role of social workers and the message of faith reduced to political vision. Everything will seem lost. But at the right time, at the most dramatic stage of the crisis, the church will be reborn. She will be smaller, poorer, almost catacomical, but here's the point, also more holy. Because it will no longer be the church of those who seek to please the world, 
but the church of the faithful to God and his eternal law. Rebirth will be the work of a small remnant, seemingly insignificant yet indomitable, passed through a process of purification, because that's how God works. Against evil, a small flock resists. And that's no nonsense. When we meet again, it'll be 2023. 2022 is coming to a close. There were good things. There were bad things. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But it's only a time. And that's the, that's the thing that I think that we need to remember. And what Father Ratzinger, now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who is facing his own eternity... The words that he said were commensurate with the prophecy of Our Lady uh, under the title Our Lady of Good Success, delivered to Mother Mary of uh, Jesus in Quito, Ecuador, 400 years ago. Mother Mariana of Jesus, I should say. That Mary said that in our days, when all seems lost and paralyzed, when everything seems lost, remember Ratzinger said, Mary said that will mark the arrival of my hour when I will crush the proud Satan under my feet, an allusion to Genesis 3.15, where God tells the serpent, I'll put enmities between thee and the woman, thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. On Gaudete Sunday, we read, uh, read the words of St. Paul from his letter to the Philippians, but they are always appropriate. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your kindness be shown to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but present your needs to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which is beyond all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Be not afraid. That appears in the Bible 365 times, once for every day of the year. But rejoice in the Lord. That appears 800 times. And that's no nonsense. All right. Thanks for being with us for our final um, podcast slash broadcast of the year 2022. And we will be back uh, in the new year with uh, lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want to say thank you for those who have listened, those who have supported us throughout the year. And if you're new, um, I would ask for your prayers, which we definitely need. And if possible... You can make a donation, uh, even become a monthly donor, help support us financially. We need that too. Visit vmpr.org, click on the button that says Donate, and you can find out all about it. Also, you can find out about our apostolate and the very many things that we're doing and the different programs that we have on Virgin Most Powerful Radio at our website, vmpr.org. Also, you can find out about our upcoming conferences this uh, January and also in the spring. So until next time, thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.